You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're here, we're gathered, united by your Spirit and declaring the worthiness of your Son, the Lamb that was slain on our behalf, who's rescued us and saved us as we were running from you, as we were rebelling from you. You chose to send your Son to suffer and die as a substitute in our place so that our sin could be placed on him and that his righteousness could be imputed to us, God. We thank you and praise you for the the beauty of what you have called us to, God. We pray right now that as your word is open, God, that the living word, the, the word that became flesh would be revealed to us, that we would walk away better understanding who Jesus is and what he's done, and that we would be more conformed into his glorious image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. And as you're taking your seats, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. There's going to be uh, some ushers coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. If you left your Bible at home, then this is a loaner, and uh, we're glad to provide that for you so that you can uh, follow along. Open it up to the book of Galatians. We are starting a brand new series today called a No Longer a Slave. And uh, I love that statement. I'm very excited about this series going through the book of Galatians. Our theme verse is found in Galatians uh, chapter 4. Check out Galatians chapter 4 beginning at verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And listen to this, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The message of the book of Galatians is a message of freedom. It's, it's, it's a declaration of the, the freedom that we enjoy as followers of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We're no longer a slave. It says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, because you're no longer a slave. Then look at chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. The message of the book of Galatians is the message of the New Testament. This idea of us being transferred from a curse to blessing, from old to new, from death to life, from law to promise, from works to faith, and from slavery to sonship. You see, what Christ accomplished on the cross was not merely forgiveness, but also freedom. The cross didn't simply just transfer sinners and make them saints. It also took slaves and made them sons and daughters. It didn't just take away the punishment for sin. It also took away the power that sin has over us to enslave us. 
And that's why I'm so excited to start this series, No Longer a Slave, from the book of Galatians. And so we're going to turn to chapter 1, verse 1, right now. And if you're ready, say ready. We're going to go word by word, verse by verse, line by line, paragraph uh, by paragraph in this study of this incredible book, this, this treatise on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So the first word is a Paul. This is a Paul. He describes himself as uh, an apostle. And uh, if you're not familiar with Paul, you can come back next week because the whole second half of chapter one and most of chapter two, it's Paul's autobiography. So I'm not going to fill in those details right now. You can learn about that next week because we're just following verse by verse, line by line, word by word. But he does call himself an apostle. Uh, apostle, uh, the word literally means a sent one, someone who has been commissioned, someone who has been given a messenger, given a message by another person, and then is sent out to declare that message at a specific time in a specific place. Now, Jesus called certain disciples close to himself. He personally challenged and commissioned them and equipped them, and he called them his apostles, his sent ones, his messengers. And uh, these were his, his 12 uh, apostles. And they, they were uh, set apart. They had this special role. And Paul, he was sort of like a late acquisition, acquired right at the trade deadline. And he was, uh, he was added to the apostles. Now, in order to be an apostle, listen, the word apostle, it simply means sent one. So sometimes in the New Testament, uh, the word apostle is used, but it's not describing this group of people. Sometimes uh, the word apostle is even used in the, in the church today. Um, but those kinds of apostles are nothing like this kind of apostle that Paul describes in, that he uses to describe himself in Genesis 1 verse 1. You see, these original apostles, they were personally called by the living Jesus Christ. They also all personally witnessed, the, the, saw with their own eyes, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Paul saw that on the Damascus Road in Acts uh, chapter 9. These, these were special apostles. One commentator calls them capital A apostles uh, who, who had this special purpose. And Jesus sent them with this message. And in order to authenticate this message, he gave them the power to perform miracles, to back up and to authenticate the message that they were proclaiming. But they played a specific role at a specific time in the history of the church. There are no apostles like this Anymore, There may be people who are sent. There may be people who, who represent another group. Some, some people might use the term apostle today, but it's not like this apostle. You know, um, in the book of Acts, one of the apostles dies. James, the son of Zebedee, in Acts chapter 12, he's executed. You know, they didn't go and replace him. The other apostles didn't all get together and, you know, there was white smoke and then there was black smoke. And, hey, we got another apostle. We repla-. No, they, they, they played a specific role at a specific time. And so their authority, the apostolic authority that they had is preserved for us in books like Galatians. So the authority doesn't lie in, uh, in certain men in the church today or leaders in the church today. The authority lies in the words that we have written by these apostles. So Paul makes it clear. He says, I'm an apostle, uh, not from men, uh, nor through man. He's an apostle through Jesus 
Christ. Paul's not writing this letter alone. Verse 2, he says, and all the brothers who are with me. And then he says to the churches of Galatia. Um, uh, Galatia is a province. Most of the letters in the New Testament are named after cities. You know, like Romans is named after Rome. Corinth is named after, or sorry, Corinthians is named after Corinth. And so we assume that, oh, Galatians, there must have been a city named Galatia. There actually wasn't a city named Galatia. Galatia was a province. And so it would be sort of like, and not writing a letter to the Calgarians, but to the Albertans, or not to the Bramptonians, or the Torontonians, or the Georgetownonians, um, but the or Mississaugaites, but, but the Ontarians. And so, um, and so this, is the, this is the province of Galatia. And in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you can read about this. Paul enters into this region called Galatia, and he visits a number of these cities. Antioch of Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. And we went through a number of those instances in our Built to Last series when we were going through the book of Acts uh, together. And uh, some scholars believe that when, when Paul says Galatia, he's referring to other cities way up uh, in the north, but there's no evidence that Paul ever traveled there. The New Testament tells us that when he was in Galatia, he visited these cities, and so it makes sense for us to assume that these are the cities that he is writing to. And these uh, Christians, these churches in these different cities in this province, they were wrestling with this idea of freedom. Some of them were thinking that the Christian life meant that you could live however you wanted to live and you had complete freedom and there was no restriction or no rules or anything like that. But Paul warns them in Galatians chapter five about the the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit that to live like that, that's not actually freedom. That's more bondage. You're just enslaved to the desires of your flesh. There were other people in Galatia who thought that the answer to this this fleshly permissiveness was to have more rules and to focus on the Old Testament law. And Paul said, that's not freedom either. Now, freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Freedom is found in the Spirit. Freedom is found in the New Covenant. That's what Paul is going to be unpacking for these churches. And in these first nine verses at the beginning of the book of uh, Galatians, we're going to see three things that we need to do, three things that we need to embrace, that the church at Galatia needed to embrace as Paul was writing to them and because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's being spoken to us here in Brampton today. Three things that we need in order to live a life of Christian freedom. The first one is this, to treasure the gospel of grace and peace. To treasure the gospel of grace and peace. Now, those, there's, 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 I understand, there's three really churchy sounding words in that, uh, in that point right there. The first one is gospel. Gospel simply means good news. Gospel is like the technical term to describe the whole message of who Jesus is and what he came to do in dying on the cross for us. And gospel is sort of a a summary term to describe all of that. It's going to be an important term in this passage that we're looking at and in the whole book of Galatians. But if you look at verse 3 with me, the first words out of Paul's mouth, now that he's done the introduction, this is who I am and this is who you are, the churches at Galatia, he says to them, grace and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. His first words are grace and peace. Grace, again, it's a churchy word that we sing about or we hear about in sermons. We, we, we talk about it or we, we use it in our prayers. But what does grace actually mean? Here's the definition of grace. It's God's unconditional kindness to unworthy sinners. Unconditional kindness towards unworthy sinners. 
God has chosen in his grace to be unconditionally kind, just lavishing forgiveness and mercy and blessing without any stipulation, without any, well, we got to do this first. No, there's no conditions. There's no conditions at all. But it goes deeper than that. It's not simply that God's love is unconditional. It's that he showers it on people who are unworthy. You see, unconditional kindness would make sense if we were just somehow neutral towards God. If we were, you know, a little bit good and maybe a little bit bad, but he just chose to be unconditionally kind to us. No, but the message of the gospel is that we are unworthy sinners. That he's unconditionally kind to those who deserve nothing but punishment. That's who we are. As sinners who have wandered from God, who have turned away from Him, God has been unconditionally kind to us, even though we are so unworthy. Then the next word he says is peace, and peace is what grace accomplished. We have peace with God. We ran from God. There used to be a rift in our relationship, but God was unconditionally kind to us, even though we were unworthy, and now we have peace with Him. Now He has restored our relationship. And then in these, this short little paragraph here, Paul is going to highlight as, as sub-points for a point one, three aspects of this gospel of grace and peace. The first one is this, it's related to the word peace, but the gospel is relational. It's relational. God wants to be at peace with us. He wants to end the hostility. He wants to stop us from being prodigal sons who are running away from him. He wants to embrace us and bring us close. Look how the verse goes on in verse 3. Grace to you and peace, notice this, from God our Father. He wants to relate to us as a father. Loved ones, you will never live in true Christian freedom until you learn what it means to relate to God as a father. Talk about unconditional. You look at the fathers in this room uh, right now uh, you, and, and the children who are sitting beside of them. None of you guys are waiting to get uh, invited into the family after you earn it, right? You're in the family. You're part of the family. Your, your father loves you. Your mother loves you. Now, now, I know some of you have had really negative upbringings, and please don't allow the, the, the hurts of the past to stop you from embracing what God has for you in the present and in the future. Allow those negative experiences not to cause you to turn away from God, but to flee towards Him uh, to make sense of, of uh, what has been a painful a past for you. But He wants to relate to us as a father. The whole point of the gospel, the whole point of Jesus coming was to restore that relationship. We're created to be in relationship with one another and created to be in relationship with him. The gospel is relational. Verse 3, after it mentions God the Father, it says, and the Lord Jesus Christ, now into verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil Age. So the gospel is relational. Note, make note of this. The gospel is also sacrificial. Jesus gave himself. He gave himself. What, what did he give himself for? For our sins. He chose to be a substitute for us. Jesus' death on the cross didn't just earn us some sort of second chance to make things right. No, that's not what happened. He died on the cross to take the punishment for all of our sins, sins in the past, in the present, in the future. He suffered and died for us. 
as a substitute so that when he died on the cross, he was taking all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all the punishment that we deserve as unworthy sinners. And it was poured on Jesus Christ and so that his righteousness and his grace and his forgiveness could be bestowed on us. It was sacrificial, but again, it didn't merely accomplish forgiveness for us. It also accomplished freedom for us. First hint of freedom in the whole book of Galatians, in the middle of verse 4, and to deliver us, to deliver us from this present evil age. Deliverance, to be set free, to be brought out of captivity, and to be brought into this broad and free space that God has provided for us in his grace. Notice how it says this present evil age. You see, um, this present evil age is still happening, but at the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ started a new age, and we are part of that age, and the age to come and this present evil age, rather than having one stop and the other start, right now they're overlapping, and this present evil age is fading, and it will one day come to an end, but Christ said we are living in the world, but we're not of the world, are we? We're from a different age, We're living for a different kingdom. Our kingdom is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And although they're running parallel to one another now, we are not in the stream. We are not following the course of this world or the prince of the power of the air. We are now living in this new age. We have been delivered. We are no longer enslaved to the things that used to have a hold of us, that used to enslave us. And then lastly, it's, it's relational, it's sacrificial. Lastly, it's unilateral. Unilateral. Let, let me describe what I mean when I use the term unilateral. Unilateral is a word to describe an action or a decision that is accomplished by one person. Uh, it, it's, it's to stand in contrast of a bilateral which involves a, an action or a decision that's accomplished by two people. So in a marriage... Most decisions, if not all decisions, should be bilateral. You should talk it over. You should decide together. A lot of unilateral decisions in a marriage is very unhealthy if one person is just deciding. Uh, In a company... Um, with, a, with a board of directors, if, if, if the leader of the company or the, or the CEO of the company is making decisions repeatedly, unilaterally, that's a problem if they're just deciding things on their own. They, they normally should be made bilaterally. But here's the, here's the amazing thing about the gospel, is there was no opportunity for a bilateral decision to be made. We were running from God, rebelling from Him. We weren't even coming to the negotiating table. We didn't meet God halfway and get on a whiteboard and figure, okay, here's how we're going to save humanity together. God's going to do his part, and we're going to do our part over here. No, look at what it says. From this present evil age, I'm in the middle of verse 4 right now, according to the will of our God and Father. It was according to his will. God made the decision. We, we couldn't make the decision ourselves. We didn't want to make the decision ourselves, but God unilaterally decided to rescue us and to save us. That's why verse five, it says, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. If the gospel was not unilateral, then we would have to share the glory with God. God would get some glory for what he did, but then we would get some glory for the good deeds we did to earn our way to heaven. But that's not how it works, is it? It was unilateral. God did it all. He sent his son. He raised his son from the dead. He has forgiven us. It was unilateral. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is what Paul begins with. He begins with grace and peace. 
Why? Because he treasured it. And he wanted these Christians in the cities of Galatia to treasure it as well. And he was concerned. He was concerned that they were starting to drift away from the beauty of the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ as relational, sacrificial, and unilateral. And so, loved ones, we need to make sure that we are treasuring the gospel, that we are in our singing and in our, in our reading of the word, in our prayers, in the life of our church, in our families, that the gospel would be treasured. The fact that God has been unconditionally kind to me, even though I'm sacrificed for me, that he's him, and that I'm in relationship with him, that he sacrificed for me, that he, it was all according to his will, not mine. We need to keep these things. We need to treasure them. Why is it so important? Why do we need to be told to treasure something that's so awesome? We'll take a look at what was happening in the church of Galatia. Look at verse six with me. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The church at Galatia had turned away. This is why we need to treasure it, because it's very easy for us to turn. In fact, this is the second thing I want us to take from this passage, is that we need to acknowledge our tendency to turn to a different gospel. We, we all have a, a certain vulnerability. We're all susceptible. We all have this propensity or this inclination to swerve away from the true gospel and to believe something that is false. Now, before you think that, that oh man, those, those foolish Galatians, how could they ever get so off track? That would never, ever happen to me. Listen, these people... These people were personally, I mean personally, evangelized and discipled by the Apostle Paul. The people at Lystra saw him perform a miracle. They saw him get stoned half to death and then come walking back into the city. They, they, they spent time with the Apostle Paul. I don't care how thick your ESV study Bible is. Don't think that you are somehow immune from getting off course. It doesn't matter if you went to Bible college or who you listen to on the radio or what kind of podcasts are on your iPhone. We need to be so careful and so aware of our own tendency. Notice how Paul says, how quickly. Next week, we're gonna lay out a bit of a chronology of, of Paul's uh, life and his relationship to the church at, uh, at Galatia. But if you lay out a, a timeline for Paul's life, Paul was in the Galatian region around AD 48. This letter was written in AD 48 or very early AD 49. They drifted from the gospel in less than a year. Less than a year. And look at the words that Paul is using here. He says, you, you've, you've, you've done it quickly and you've, you're, you're deserting. That word is, is it's a military term to describe a soldier who deserts. But it, it's not simply a soldier who goes AWOL and doesn't show up to the battle. What this word describes is a soldier who is fighting the battle on this side and then all of a sudden turns and starts fighting with the enemy. And Paul is astonished. And to be totally honest, I bet you the people of Galatians were astonished that Paul was astonished. 
because they probably didn't think that they had trashed the gospel. They probably didn't think that they had turned from believing in Jesus. They thought they still treasured the gospel of grace and truth, but they had just been hearing some things or learning some things, and they thought they were going deeper. Well, they were digging, but they were digging something else. They weren't going deeper. They weren't just simply looking at the gospel from a different angle. They had, in fact, done a complete 180-degree turn. And the way that they were thinking and the way that they were living was completely antithetical to the gospel that Paul preached. That's the scary thing. That's why we got to be aware of our tendency to turn and to be influenced. Because, listen, false teachers never get up on a Sunday morning and say, good morning, I'm a false teacher. Please open your Bible, although I won't be teaching from it. False teachers are subtle. False teachers are not only fooling other people. For the most part, they're fooled themselves. It's not like they're doing it on purpose. And, and, and so we have to understand, I need to understand how we all have this propensity, this tendency, this susceptibility to turn away from the true gospel that Jesus suffered and died for us and that that is the only way to be saved. You see, because deep inside of every single one of us, no matter how much we love Jesus, deep inside every, every one of us, there's this, there's this sleeping Pharisee that every once in a while wakes up and, and, and says, you know what? I really got to earn my way to God. It's inside of everyone. This legalist that says, I, I, I need to do my part. I need to tell those people that they're wrong. I, I need to do all of these things. And inside each and every one of us in our sinful flesh, there's also not just a legalist, there's also an incredibly lazy person. And sometimes false teaching that just says, you know, you don't have to do anything. And uh, there is no cost of discipleship. It's not a narrow road. And, and sin is not a big deal at all. And false teaching appeals to that person as well. There's a there's a, a part inside of us that although we understand the gospel and although if we have Jesus, that means we have everything, there is a part inside of each and every one of us that's a little bit discontent, that would think if I just had a few more thousand dollars a year, that I'd be more comfortable. If I had a lot more thousand dollars a year, I'd be a lot more comfortable. And so there's part of us that is drawn to the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. That, Again, prosperity gospel teachers don't say, close your Bibles and I'm going to tell you how to get rich. No, they try to use the Bible and try to show you that they're saying like they're talking about the gospel and it's just the gospel from a different angle that God loves you and he wants you to be rich and you're a child of the king. And you think you're just turning a little bit this way. Well, I can get money too. But really what's happening is you're completely turning against what the gospel is ultimately about. So that, that lives inside of each and every one of us. It was living within the Christians who were in the cities of Galatia. That's what Paul is addressing. Paul was so astonished. He was astonished that they couldn't see it themselves. And he, he uses the word um, in, in verse 7. He says, not that there is another one. It's like you turn to a different gospel. He's like, but there is no different gospel. 
There's only one version of the news that's good news. It's that Jesus died for your sin, and if you place your faith in him, you have eternal life. That is the good news. If you try to add anything to that or take anything to that away from that, it's not good news anymore. It's bad news. Paul says that's, that's, there isn't another gospel. And then he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's as though you're, you know, working on a little, remember those little Etch-a-Sketch toys? where you turn the little knobs and it, you could write something or draw something. It's as though we had perfectly written out the word gospel in cursive on our Etch-a-Sketch. And that word troubling means to shake or to agitate. That someone just took that Etch-a-Sketch that was so clear, the gospel was being treasured and just shook it all up. And now the church wasn't sure what they believed. And some people were going off the edge of, of living a lazy, licentious lifestyle, sinning however they want and going, being enslaved to their flesh. And other people were being super legalistic and rules-oriented, and both were lost. And they were all being shaken up. And there was a bunch of people caught in between saying, what do I actually believe? And they felt chained by it, and Paul wants to set them free. And the word trouble, is, it's in contrast to the peace that Paul wants for them. Remember, he started by saying grace and peace. And he says in verse 6, you've turned from grace. And then in verse 7, he says, now you're troubled. Now the, now the water is not calm and still. Now it's all stirred up. You've been troubled by it. So once we acknowledge our tendency to turn to different gospels, Here's the last thing we need to do. We need to develop discernment in identifying gospel distortions. Develop discernment in identifying gospel distortions. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul is saying... Church, you need to know the gospel so well that even if, even if he himself, even if the Apostle Paul came back on another missionary journey and said, you know what, I'm tweaking the gospel a little bit here. Here's, here's the real way to get saved. Paul said, don't listen to me. He said, even if an angel were to come, even if an angel were to come, do not listen to him. Every six months or so, I get a knock on my door, and there's two polite young gentlemen wearing black slacks, white-collared shirts that are short-sleeved with a name tag that says elder on it. And they're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're Mormons. And they want me to read the Book of Mormon, and they want me to, you know, get that sense that they uh, talk about that the Book of Mormon is true. And uh, it's kind of our habit for Lindsay and I to uh, to really try to befriend them, to invite them into our home every time. And to, uh, I don't know if you know this about Mormons, but so often they struggle with loneliness because they never actually do their missionary work in their hometown. They always travel somewhere else. So they're from New Mexico or Colorado or Utah or something like that. And, and so they just come to our cities. So I invite them in, I find out where they're from and how they like living in Canada. And then I let them give their little talk about about Joseph Smith and how an angel appeared to him and the golden plates and how uh, the gospel needed to be added to and clarified. And I listen to them and then, I, and then I just get out my Bible and I say, you believe this is God's word? And they say, well, yeah, but it needs to be added to. And, um, 
And then I take them to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. And I say, you just told me a story about a man who heard from an angel that the gospel needed to be changed. And I say, but even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. And then I say, based on what you just described, my book emphatically commands me not to read your book. My book actually emphatically commands me to warn you that what you are doing and the religion that you are believing in is actually under a curse. And then I plead with them to believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know this about Mormons either, but there's so much social pressure on them to continue and believe in the faith. And there's the pressure of being disowned by your family. There's the pressure of if you don't go on mission or if, you, if you're not a faithful in the, uh, in the different things that Mormons are supposed to do, then you won't get into the right schools, that, that, that you, you won't be able to find the right uh, marriage partner. You, you'll be ostracized. And so I plead with them. I say, hey, we've got, a, we've got a spare bedroom in our house. I've got a church full of people that would be willing to take you in because I know. And I tell them, I tell them, I know that you, part of the reason why you're still believing what you believe is because you feel enslaved by it. You feel like you can't turn away from it. And I invite them, and that's what we need to be doing, is sharing with them the gospel, laying it on the line. But here's my fear, loved ones. I wonder if the evangelical church in Canada today has any more discernment than those people who believed in Joseph Smith. Oh, he's got, a, he's got a PhD. He's so smart. I can barely, under, I, need to, I need to carry a little pocket dictionary with me. He's so intelligent and he, what he's saying must be true because he's so well read. Even if an angel, even if the apostle Paul. Oh, he's a best-selling author. I mean, so many people love him. I hear him on the radio. And so I, I, I must believe them. Even if the angel even if the Apostle Paul were to teach something contrary. I mean, this person, they had an after-death experience. They said they saw things. They said they heard things. It must be true. Even if an angel, even if the Apostle Paul, I'm pretty sure right now that as you're listening to me, none of you are sort of cowering in fear or shielding your eyes from my splendorous glory. I'm sure very few of you are tempted right now to bow down and to worship me because that's how people normally respond in the presence of an angel. Angels are always telling people in the New Testament, get up, stop worshiping me. Do not fear, right? And don't assume for a minute that you don't need gospel discernment when you hear me preach. Because I have a tendency to believe false gospels, just like the rest of us. And this is why we need one another, and this is why we need the Spirit of God. Don't assume that just because you listen to certain podcasts or read certain bloggers or, or went to a certain school or any of that, that, don't think that you're somehow immune from this. And, and one of the things I often get asked is, Ted, how come you don't name names? 
How come you don't say, the following people are false teachers in the province of Ontario. The following people on WDCX and Joy 1250 you shouldn't listen to. Why should I do that? Why don't I do that? I don't do that because, what, am I going to tell you not to listen to an angel? Am I going to tell you not to listen to the Apostle Paul if, she don't, if he showed up here one day? It's not about having a list of these are the good teachers and these are the bad teachers. It's about having gospel discernment. It's about listening to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And if it's not all about the Son of God and the gospel, then it's false. We need to do, amen, that's worth clapping for. So how do you develop this discernment? First of all, you got to know the Word. You got to know Mormonism? Well, Galatians 1.8, that makes no sense. I can't believe that. So you got to know the Word. And listen, you also got to know yourself. You got to know your own flesh. You got to know how human beings work. And you got to know what, because every false teaching is appealing to some sort of false, unmet desire in ourselves, in our flesh. So how do you know the word and know yourself? Listen, it's not just sitting in front of a mirror with your Bible, as important as that is. You got to be in community. You got to be in a small group because people are going to teach you stuff in the word that you don't know. People are going to teach you stuff about yourself that you don't know. We got to develop gospel discernment, identify these kinds of distortions. This is serious language he uses in verse 8, accursed. And then even to, to, to make sure that he's not just being flippant in his language, he repeats it in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus for, by faith for the forgiveness of your sins because of his grace, if you're not trusting in him, then you are. You're under a curse. And any kind of gospel that you are trying to believe that is diminishing what Christ accomplished on the cross, you are inviting a curse on your life. You're going back to the days of Adam and Eve. You're going right back to the beginning when they were evicted from the Garden of Eden. There was a curse put on the land and curse put on their life. All of these things we're inviting into our lives. And so this, this curse is something that we need to be aware of. Anytime that we step out from under the, the grace of Jesus Christ or knowledge of the forgiveness that we have in his name, we are stepping back into that horrible curse proclaimed in Genesis 3. But the answer to the curse of Genesis 3 is found in Galatians chapter 3. And so let's close by looking at chapter 3 of verse 10, and then we'll look at verse 13. The first part of the Galatians really goes after the people who are legalistic and who are enslaved to rules and rituals and religion. The second half of Galatians goes after the people who are sort of lazy and living according to the flesh. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This was one of the false gospels that, that Paul was, uh, was talking about. Then he says, Cursed, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul says, if you want to be a legalist, fine, but just understand that God doesn't grade on like, oh, you got six out of ten right. No, the book of James says that if you break one of the commands, it's as though you've broken the whole thing. 
So I'm pretty sure if we go through the Ten Commandments, you know, like most of the people here in this room, we're pretty safe in the category of like murder. (laughs) But if you've broken the fifth command of dishonoring your father or mother or the tenth command of coveting something that belongs to someone else, then it's like you've broken the whole thing. And so there, there's a, if, if you try to live according to the rules, you're automatically cursed because no one has ever lived according to those rules. No one except Jesus Christ. And look what it said about Christ in verse 13. Christ redeemed us. That word redeem, that's, a word, that's, a, that's a, the word to describe being set free from slavery. Christ redeemed us. Christ set us free from slavery, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hanged on a tree. Christ was hanged on a cross. He experienced that curse on our behalf. He was the one who deserved the blessing. He was the one who had finally, the only one to ever live the perfect life, who followed the law perfectly to a T, and yet he was the one who experienced the curse for all of us who have disobeyed the law. And so what we need more than anything is to treasure this gospel. What we need more than anything is to treasure Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he took a cup And he said, take these things. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And he went to a cross and he wore a crown of thorns, which is a sign of the curse. He was hanged on a tree, which brought a curse on him because all of us were under a curse. But he gives us good news, news of grace and of peace. And here's the beauty of the cross. And here's the beauty of these symbols that we're about to share in just a few moments. When you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you see him suffering and dying for you, it's impossible to be puffed up and inflated by all of your good deeds. It's impossible. Because you see, Christ suffered, whether, you, whether they're quote-unquote small sins or quote-unquote big sins, God doesn't work in those categories. It's impossible for you to be puffed up by your spiritual resume And so it protects us against pride. But here's the other thing. When you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, it's impossible for you to become too deflated by your own failures. It's impossible for you to think that you're somehow unforgivable or to think that because you keep falling back into the same patterns of sin, the same fears, the same insecurities. But when you you follow Jesus Christ and have your eyes on the cross, there is freedom. You're not trapped by your own pride and you're not crushed by your own failure. But you walk upright and you walk in freedom because you know Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus forgives me. And Jesus has set me free. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. We come to you by your Spirit. We pray right now that you would meet with us as we take these symbols in our hands. I pray, Lord God, that we would trust in you in this moment, Lord, not trusting in our own performance, not trusting in these gospel distortions that we're so often tempted to believe and embrace, God. I pray that 
our hope would be found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that we would walk, Lord, knowing that we are forgiven and knowing that we are free. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.